Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. My guest today is Z Mashowitz. Z is a member of Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame and co-founder of the blockchain gaming startup Coast Inc. He also writes about rationality and games at his blog, Don't Worry About the Vase. Z, welcome to The Filter. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you here. At the beginning of 2020, you published a series of articles about what you called immoral mazes. I enjoyed reading them at the time, but at this point, I don't think you can understand the moment we're in without getting into that concept, along with some related ideas you present about how we use language. Usually on the filter, I have lots of thoughts about the subject, and I begin with some of those, but I think we need to begin here with some background. What is an immoral maze? So any large organization inevitably requires multiple levels of management. When you have a sufficient number of levels of management, then the people who are in the middle are in a strange position where they stop interacting with the physical world and they have to report their results to their bosses who then judge them based on their actions, which are also not interacting with the physical world. And they compete on this basis for advancement across a narrowing pyramid. And the result of this type of situation is that these people stop referencing the world in the way we think of it and start engaging in what I call super perfect competition regarding the symbolic representation of the things that they do. So the idea is that you have people who in these situations have essentially been selected for their ability to do all of the things they're asked to do. But unfortunately, in general, we don't believe in differentiation through actual skill. They believe in differentiation through the competition of management, the playing of the politics games. And thus, everybody who does not play the game maximally well, who does not devote themselves maximally well to the organization, will not advance. And then the people caught in these mazes then face a situation in which not only is their morality not helpful to them, if they try to do the right thing, they get punished for it, but they actively have to do the wrong thing because to not do the wrong thing symbolizes that they care about whether or not they're doing the right thing. So go a little bit deeper on that. How, how does that symbolism or acting work in terms of their performance on the job? It means that they are being judged largely on whether or not they would be good allies, good people to promote. Everything becomes a referential on itself. And therefore, you want to show that you are maximally dedicated to the firm or whatever organization you're in and its values. And one of the ways to not be maximally dedicated to a firm is to care at all about anything else. Right? If you care about anything from not poisoning people to stamp collecting, then that is a mark against your ability to work long hours at your desk. So if you have a choice between poisoning people and not poisoning people, and you choose to not poison people, that's suspicious. It indicates you might actually prefer not poisoning people. And this might at some point interfere with your job. So essentially what we've got here is tests of loyalty or commitment to a particular organization. And those tests perhaps have to be deliberately bad in some sense. Otherwise, they wouldn't necessarily be a demonstration of your commitment to that thing. They would just be a demonstration of something you wanted to do anyway. Is, is that the gist of it? It's a, it's a poor test of someone's commitment to the organization to see if they choose not to poison someone. Obviously, you don't learn very much because most people would choose not to do that. It's important to note that this is not set up as explicit tests by higher-ups 
and then they see what you do. This is just how you go about your business throughout your job. Like you are tasked with things to do, and then you choose how to behave in order to represent yourself as best you can. You have to project yourself on a variety of ways, and it's very much a negative selection game. Like you don't win particularly by doing a particularly awesome thing most of the time. You win by avoiding negative things happening or putting yourself in a good position to take advantage of opportunities. I think a lot of what makes the articles you wrote interesting is that we are in a moment of high societal complexity and a moment where more and more of the jobs seem to have become disconnected from some kind of underlying reality. So if you think about a job like farming, there's a specific output and it's very clear that your job is to maximize that output or maximize a bundle of outputs. But I think that perhaps the rise of immoral mazes, and you can see this not just in our society, but if you look back through history as society gets more complex in terms of its culture and religion, more and more attention is paid not just to that ground level of are we producing more grain than we produced last year, but as you say, to the internal politics or machinations between people who are competing not just to produce their own stuff for themselves, but within a, a hierarchy or a corporation or a stratified society. Yeah, it, it's very important to keep yourself anchored at all times in object level reality, in doing things in the physical world, having effects in the physical world, or at least having direct effects on people in various ways. The more levels of disconnection you have, the easier it is for politics in the general sense, not politics in the sense of an election to dominate what happens. Those considerations just weed out and dominate everything else. Do you see the rise of these immoral mazes, both at the corporate level and perhaps in a more broader societal way, as inevitable over time and as we get richer and more focused on digital life and communications and less focused on producing actual stuff? Yes. It is inevitable that this would be a bigger danger over time as things become more complex, as people become more disconnected. But how much it rises is up to us, and it doesn't have to continuously rise. One thing that's important is within a given organization, what I call the maze level, the amount of maze activity relative to other activity, is almost always going up or at least not going down. It is very, very difficult to reduce the amount of maze activity because people who are in a maze, who want to be rewarded in a maze, realize that they will gain by implicitly rewarding behaviors that encourage maze behavior. It is a self-reinforcing implicit conspiracy, effectively, to drive out anybody who doesn't support the conspiracy. And once this gets sufficient toehold, it is very, very difficult or impossible to reverse. Also, a given organization's original physical purpose loses meaning and match to the situation over time. So you found a new company, this new company finds a need, it fills it, it starts innovating new products, it makes a bunch of money, it uses that to create a bureaucracy to scale up. This creates an organization. This organization creates multiple levels of management. Multiple levels of management cause the people who support those who believe in management to advance in the management over the people who don't support the existence of more people who support the management. Until eventually, almost everybody is playing politics and pushing paper, and the corporation becomes a dead player with increasingly non-functional uh, organization and lack of capacity to do anything. And then, ideally, after a while, they're outcompeted by a new corporation. 
or your social group becomes degenerate, well, there, it breaks up and you, you all form new social groups with new dynamics and you start over again. Historically speaking, what would happen would be at any level, we would systematically just have creative destruction and renewal, even if it wasn't strictly capitalistic. And this would keep this problem in check. Unfortunately, one of the reasons we're in such a big mess right now is that our political institutions in particular, but also our corporate institutions, have decided that our major organizations and groups are effectively too big to fail. We're not willing to engage in this renewal process anymore. I think that that's definitely a key to it. And I want to throw out another theory that might combine with that in terms of our particular moment here. One aspect of this to me is that there seems to be a general kind of balance um, in society and in general, wherein the better something gets, the worse it can be. So for example, if you look at a city, the more a city has to offer in terms of jobs or cultural experiences, then often the more you will also find in that city rent-seeking bureaucrats who've managed to lay claim to a large amount of incoming tax money or other kinds of pathologies. And you have, of course, often long lines to get into a restaurant or things like that. And people are willing to tolerate those inconveniences or problems or sometimes really outright dangerous situations because it's such a good thing. And I'm wondering if to some extent we are victims of our own success in that now that we live in a place that is by and large safe and everyone has enough to eat and so forth, people have become more tolerant of the rent seekers and the people who are doing those things in the immoral maze that tend to make it a more miserable place, actually. I think thinking of people as tolerant of these things is the wrong way to, is the, is the wrong phrase, the wrong way to look at it, but the phenomenon you're describing is mostly real. It, it's not a coincidence that in you know, one of the first recorded books, Herodotus, basically ends with someone saying, let us go live somewhere hard in the mountains where, where we, will become, we will be able to be great warriors and fight because they won't have surplus. This idea that having surplus makes you soft, having surplus causes you to engage in these political games, causes these things to happen is very ancient. And so it's not so much that people tolerate, people hate it. Like people hate the fact that their surplus gets eaten by super high rents and they hate that they have to show up to the restaurant two, two hours early to get a table. If the alternative to that action is worse, they don't have a choice. They have to put up with it. In general, like if you have a surplus, that surplus will eventually get eaten by these forces because these forces have the ability to do that. They don't have to put up with it, though. For example, you know, take the long line at the restaurant. I could decide that instead of living in a city that offers tons of great restaurants and other things, I could move out to a small town and I would never have to wait to eat at that diner that's the, you know, one of the two or three restaurants in that place. But I've chosen a place that is going to present me with things that irritate me because it also offers more good. So in a sense, the the better something is, the more you will choose it, despite the fact that that thing can also irritate, annoy, and take from you. It's worth noting relative to the alternative, right? If there was another restaurant across the street that had less of a weight, you would put up with it less. And we certainly have a significant number of major de facto monopolies that make these problems a lot worse. Anytime you have an oligopoly or a monopoly, 
where you have to get your services from a large corporation or any large organization, the government is certainly a monopoly of its own kind. This allows the service to get much worse. Obviously, you don't have to be in that city, and that city is actually charging you more rent for the privilege of being there. So if you don't get some value out of being in that city, you'll leave. But naturally speaking, you know, everybody wants to come to New York and San Francisco to a first approximation. So the rents have to be super high in order to allocate the available slots in the city. And then the landlords get to, in some sense, capture all of the surplus from that. And when the city government appropriates some of the value of the city by taxing people and then misappropriating the funds or being incompetent in various ways, the result of this, in some sense, is not actually even necessarily bad for the people who live there because their rents go down, because the value of being in San Francisco is lower, therefore they get charged less for being in San Francisco. And it's not necessarily clear that they're even worse off. It's a very strange phenomenon. I think that's some of the balance that you are talking about reintroducing itself in terms of competition and renewal, though the way that you set that up, and I have a high degree of sympathy for that view, is that you have something like a ratchet effect or a directional arrow where individual institutions or companies will grow in terms of the extent to which they are an immoral maze. And then because they're no longer focused on an output that helps other people and that people want to buy, they collapse under their own weight. And so that's how things balance out is essentially through collapse. Yes, I think that effectively everyone, it, it is standard for everybody to say that everything is awful and that life is terrible, despite the fact that, you know, as it was pointed out, everything is awesome at least until COVID, right? Everything is awesome and no one is happy. There are legitimate, actual bad things going on, obviously, in 2020, with all of us being forced to sit in our homes and do everything online. But this phenomenon predates that and will survive when that ends. So I think people think that everything is awful because every given thing is constantly increasing its awfulness quotient to a first approximation. Like not literally everything, but most things, and especially the things that you like the most. Because you like the things you like the most because they had the configurations and the existence and the relationship to everything else that you like the best, right? The five restaurants that you chose to go to out of the 5,000 in the city are the five restaurants that you thought were serving the best food. So if they decide to mix up their menus to create something diverse and new, on average, you'll think they got worse, even if they're not getting worse. And on top of that, they actually probably are slowly getting worse. I think that idea is actually part of the reason that um, we do end up with collapse as opposed to a nice wind down of things, because people are fairly intolerant to uh, to things getting worse. Often, I think that people are equally intolerant to things getting 20% worse as they are to things getting 90% worse. So in order to prevent a, say, a slight decline in standard of living that might be required, for example, if we wanted to actually balance our budget or pay down the national debt. Instead, we're much happier, sort of happier in scare quotes there, to go along and continue to live at our current level of consumption, ignoring the fact that at some point the result of this is going to be not just a 10% or 20% reduction in what we're able to consume, but a much more massive, chaotic, and destructive process that will almost certainly lead to a much lower state of consumption and perhaps happiness. There's a lot of incentives pushing 
us in that direction at all times. One of which is you never actually know that it's going to happen, right? It could, things could continue for a very long time. Perhaps technological innovation will get us out of it. Perhaps the economy will somehow grow out of it. Perhaps it turns out that we can sustain a lot more debt or a lot more of these other problems than we think. And perhaps it will last long enough to be somebody else's problem that I won't be blamed for. <laughs> uh, if you know that making people's lives 20% worse will mean that you are out of office and everybody hates you. But if you try to not do that, then maybe it'll be okay. You know, well, as the old joke goes, maybe the cow will learn to talk. And the man who promises the king that he will magically teach the cow how to talk in exchange for sparing his life because, well, I'm not dead yet. And any number of things could happen in a month. The king could die. I could die. The cow could learn to talk. Certainly, there are always incentives to kick the can down the road. I think that there may be a situation where the more of our work becomes abstract, the more complicated society becomes and our work becomes, the easier it is to hide these kind of kick the can down the road actions. If you want to compare it back to the idea of a farmer, if you don't plant enough, reality will kick you in the ass by the fall, and that's that. Or, you know, if you don't store up enough seeds, uh, you'll realize by the spring that you're that you're in big trouble. Whereas if you are part of one of these giant organizations that has, for the moment anyway, a large amount of cash in the bank or access to borrow money, and your job itself is not directly connected to any particular output, then perhaps you can go a lot longer pretending that what you're doing is actually not going to have a moment of reckoning. And it's also a problem where the entire corporation fails at once. If I own a farm and there's a bad harvest for my farm and my farm fails, then it's just me who doesn't have a farm anymore, who is starving. And then perhaps other people can help, even if everybody's harvests are somewhat correlated and everybody is in some trouble. There isn't a giant superstructure, lots and lots of relationships and capital that have been invested that suddenly collapses in the same way. Whereas if you are part of a 50,000 person corporation, not only do you have very little incentive to stop the corporation from failing because you personally have very little influence on whether the corporation fails, but if the corporation does fail and the whole thing comes crashing down. And if something too big crashes down, it can be very difficult to put things back together and recover. Even more incentive to make sure the thing doesn't fail, to prop up the large thing that's failing. One of the uh, expressions that I like the best related to that is that if you owe the bank $100,000, then you have a problem. If you owe the bank $100 million, then the bank has a problem. Yes. And if you owe $100 billion, then the government has a problem. Exactly. <laughs> right. So we've talked about the ways in which uh, immoral mazes can make life miserable and how they can grow up. Part of the thing that I see happening right now that makes this not just something that is within particular companies is that we have, as a whole, moved our relationship towards language, and we've become more accepting of certain kinds of linguistic games or a framework of living that shifts the focus away from the object level up higher levels. And you've written some about this, and I don't necessarily want to do a detailed summary of the different levels that you put forth, but just in a general sense, 
Could you explain the idea that we have language that refers directly to the objects, and then we have certain levels of indirect or abstraction that we can also use language for? Right. So the idea is of simulacra, of symbols, and what level symbols are on, I find to be very useful in understanding what is going on, and then different people will engage in different levels of communication. And on some level, all human communication is operating on all of these levels, but there are definitely different shifts of focus and emphasis and what we assume is the primary content of the statement. So level one is just the object level. It's just saying something that the symbol corresponds to the object. So level one would be, there is a line across the river. It means, look, there's a line, there's actually a line across the river. Level two is effectively lying. It's thinking about what will happen if somebody else thinks what you're thinking. It's pretending that you are saying something about the object level. It's saying there's, an, uh, there's a line across the river because you think that if they think there's a line across the river, they won't want to cross the river and you would rather stay here for whatever reason that may or may not have anything to do with the line. So the, uh, the primary action there goes from telling something, someone something direct about the world to expressing this idea because it will change someone else's behavior or you think it will change someone else's behavior. At level one, you are doing the thing of communicating information. At level two, you're pretending to communicate information in the hopes that this will look like communication information to somebody else. And then they will update their model and then they will make decisions. But it's still pretty grounded, right? It, it's, it's worse in, in many senses because it means that people get the wrong idea, but it's also consequentialist. It has advantages. It's unavoidable. There's always going to be the incentive to move here. Then there's level three, which is pretending to pretend or alternatively to, to say the statement as an expression of what things and groups you want to support and be seen as associating with, as opposed to the things you want to distance yourself from. So you say, there's a line across the river because you want to be seen as part of the group that thinks there's a line across the river, the team that is pro thinking there's a line across the river right now, for whatever reason. So you say that to express your membership in this group. Before we go on to, you have one more level there, I want to dig into this idea of what you're describing at level three, because I don't think you can understand our world, especially our world right now, without really seeing that as a phenomenon. So in one of your uh, articles, you wrote about people at, at level three calling them drones. The drone sings songs and carries signs, mostly saying hooray for our side. I see your description of level three as what's sometimes called useful idiots. To me, this is a, a frightening phenomenon. And in general, the movement of many people up into level three for their everyday actions or the way that they act politically is um, startling and, and dangerous. I don't know if you agree with that. Level three is definitely dangerous. Like I, when I call someone a drone, right, as a, as a person who is communicating entirely or almost entirely on level three. So it is natural for people to hear anything you say or watch anything you do and interpret that partly as what groups are you for, are you parts of, what causes do you support, and so on. And, you know, all of us, including here in this conversation, have in the back of our minds what meanings on this level will be taken from any of our statements, and that's unavoidable. But when level three comes to dominate too much, Yes, you get the phenomenon where someone is engaging in actions without regard to the actual truth content of the statements they're making, but regard to the physical impacts of the movements they're making or of the manipulation of physical reality that's taking place or being encouraged to take place. 
because that's not what's important. What's important is to convey that you are part of the in-group and that you dislike the out-group, whatever the in-group and out-group may be. So then after level three, there's a, a further level of abstraction, right? Right. So like if level three is pretending to pretend, right? The person who is part of the group is saying, I believe in cause X. I believe in there being a line across the river. But you're not actually trying to convey to other people that there is a line across the river or even that you believe there is a line across the river. But you are representing that you are representing that there's a line across the river. You're pretending to be on level two. That's not what you're actually doing. And then level four is where you stop pretending entirely. Level four is where there is no link whatsoever to the underlying value. Like if you are in level three, you still have to tell a story that is in some sense a plausible lie right? Or it can be a possible truth. It doesn't have to be a lie. But it is still allowed at level three in some sense. It's a valid move in argument to say your statement makes no sense. To say your action is harmful. And if you can demonstrate that it is in fact obviously harmful or sufficiently harmful or false, then you can score points. You can win people over to your side and you can gain status and they can lower their status. At level four, this stops being true. At level four, you're no longer pretending at all that what you're saying corresponds to something true. All you're saying is that saying this thing benefits me and therefore I'm saying it. So one of the transitions that I see that seems to be pushing people up the levels in terms of the extent to which we focus on those higher levels of communication and the extent to which it's necessary to understand and focus on those higher levels has to do with our our institutions of higher learning. I first started out at the University of Illinois. I didn't complete a degree there, but it began as an agricultural university, a school there that was focused on how can we teach people to be better at planting and harvesting. And there were a lot of experiments done there with crops. And it was very much focused on how can we take a group of people and make them better at optimizing their output, where their output was something concrete like food, crops, cattle. But now it seems like colleges are more and more a place where people learn how to operate at those higher levels, and specifically how to use their ability to operate at those higher levels in order to mold society in a way that is beneficial to themselves or to adapt themselves to a society in which your ability to mold yourself to that society is rewarded. Do you think that the universities have played a role in pushing us towards that kind of society where we focus more on the higher levels? I think they definitely play a role. I mean, I'm a big believer in the signaling model of education for the most part, that the main reason you go to college is the degree. That's certainly the main reason I went to college. I was informed by my parents, you have to go to college because you need a degree because a degree is required in order to get a job. And I finished my degree because I'd have the degree in order to go get a job. In fact, a specific job, which I then got at some point in the future because of it. And I learned remarkably little during my course at that college, partly because I thought I was there for a degree, but also because it wasn't really a very efficient form of learning as far as I could tell. But to the extent that I did learn things, yes, absolutely, they are teaching you, here is how you go through a college class, right? Here is how you engage in these particular specific forms that are judged according to these pretty arbitrary rules that have some grounding at some point, hopefully, but in many ways kind of don't. Most of it arguably made some sense, but a lot of it was mostly nonsense. 
Yet when I look back on that and I compare it to the stories I'm hearing about university today, I think of it as a very grounded, free, positive exercise. Which is no longer the case, based on your impression. By, by comparison, it seems to have degenerated to a large extent, based on stories that much of the things that they talk about having at university now were basically not something you could, you could reasonably ignore. Right, all the things people are complaining about now about how universities have become hotbeds of X or Y and that X or Y dominates the conversation and that everything is distorted and everything is bad. Maybe that was happening somewhere else, but at least you could choose to opt out of it. I majored in mathematics. I was a STEM guy. And so it was very easy for me to basically ignore all of that. I didn't really want to hang out with other college students. I didn't really want to be seen as popular or anything like that. But I also didn't see any of that stuff posted on the wall. There was nobody trying to convince me of anything. There was nobody trying to convince anyone else of anything as far as I could tell. And when we had our required readings of the historic canon of literature, people were able to talk freely and there was really no, didn't seem to be a worry about if I say the wrong thing that something terrible will happen to me. And I, I think that that's increasingly not the case, at least from what I've seen, even in studies that you would think would be insulated from that, like STEM. I think that ultimately in a society that is less focused on making sure they get enough to eat, the dominant strategy becomes working on levels three and four. So one of the, the theories that is somewhat right, I think, and, and somewhat wrong is that idea of kind of the Maslow's hierarchy. And the idea there is that you have a, a certain levels of need and basic food and water comes at the bottom. And actually, social acceptance is not that much higher than that. And if you have people who have fully fulfilled the kind of lower levels, then they're more susceptible to striving at the higher levels and to pressures against them that work against their being able to succeed at those higher levels. So you have a situation where the dominant strategy may be to work on the level of getting people socially ostracized, or even more than that, on mutating the language in ways that put people in particular categories they don't want to be in, or that allow you to create an artificial view of reality that benefits you. Whereas if you are just at the object level, it's very hard to warp reality in that same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, one way I think about it often is that you want to be about one level higher than the person you are competing with for resources in order to win the competition for those resources. If I am operating as if words have meaning, then you want to lie about the meaning of those words. If I am lying about the meaning of the words, then you want to play an alliance game against me. If I am playing an alliance game, you may want to manipulate the alliances on a higher level while I sit around being a drunk. There's more to it than that, but it's, it's pretty straightforward that Moving to a slightly higher level of communication gives you a strategic advantage in the competition for resources, where that resource can be social acceptance, advancement of position, or it can be something more basic. And so people in college you know, are very much not connected to the object level. There's no expectation at all that the things you will learn will cash out in relation to the object level or even as a useful skill for the most part. Most people, it seems, go to college expecting that they will engage in an intellectual exercise of certifying that they are people who know how to be compliant and are intellectually engaged in learning things and might make a good employee someday or a good spouse or whatnot. And then they go off and the business world teaches them what they actually need to learn. 
And you can seek out useful classes, but they are few and far between. When I look back at my college experience, I would say that in terms of actual usefulness, one optional course I chose to take, Statistics 101, beats the rest of my classes combined. That's not an exaggeration. I took statistics for engineers because I, at the time, was engaging in exercises where I needed that information. And that allowed me to actually understand statistics much better and make a lot of money. And every other class I did was more or less intellectually interesting, more or less allowed me to signal things, but didn't actually teach me useful things at all. So one way to view what you said there was that for many people, uh, college might be something like a finishing school for linguistic shenanigans or just a purely signaling mechanism that they are compatible with particular forms of culture that might be useful uh, in the future. It's also a form of consumption in a networking event. So it's not all, you know, it has a variety of benefits. There is that too, though it's uh, unclear now uh, in the era where uh, actual physical presence might be going away, how much the network effect is going to be valuable. I actually hope here that in the tumult of this moment that there might be a re-examining of essentially what is a higher education bubble, in my opinion, and a an overconsumption of schooling. I mean, schooling is one of those goods where what matters to a large extent is your amount of schooling compared to the competition that you have. So it's kind of a bubble, but it's also kind of a situation in which if everyone else is going to college, you have to go to college. And when everyone else starts going to graduate school, you have to consider going to graduate school and so on for the relevant everyone else because you're competing for signaling and status. When everybody goes to extra school, then everybody just loses extra years of their life and goes further and further into debt and everybody is worse off if there doesn't cash out in actual knowledge, in actual skill at the end of the day. And it seems like our colleges certainly aren't efficiently giving us that information. And so I would certainly hope that the disruption that's happening this year will make people realize I'm paying $40,000 to take classes online. That doesn't really make sense. I could just read the book. That's how I was actually learning anyway. What do I need this college for? Maybe there's, there has to be a better way. And, and maybe people can find other ways to certify people. And, and we've waited a long time for it, but it's very hard to disrupt an equilibrium like this, right? Like you need an excuse for like why you weren't being, as Brian Cavill puts it, conformist, not just capable. So if you choose to step outside the college system, then you're the type of person who doesn't like just following the rules and doing the thing you're supposed to do. And an employer might be suspicious of that. And this moment potentially gives us an out for that, right? Like, why didn't you do that? Well, my school was closed down. There was no school to go to. So those kind of equilibriums are really interesting to me. You can see that you've you've achieved something of perhaps a, a local maximum uh, to go into the kind of the mathematics of it a bit, uh, and then you get stuck there, and then that local maximum actually begins to diminish over time and become less and less valuable, but the nearby ground is still lower than your particular local maximum. So it's almost like you're on a peak, but that entire peak, if you want to visual it that way, is sinking into the ground. And one of the things that keeps it in place and keeps people from moving off there are particular kind of incentives that I see everywhere and that people don't seem to talk about too much, which is what you got to there about the particular kind of signaling. So, for example, if you had a situation where every single insurance company had for years and years required that people have a GPS tracker in their car and they wouldn't give you insurance otherwise, then some other 
insurance company sprung up that was willing to forego that requirement, that insurance agency is going to have a really hard time at first because all of the people who pile into that agency are going to be people who are highly incentivized to not want their speed tracked. So you get a, a system where the only thing that's going to kind of break that up is some sort of a mass movement or some kind of major disruption that opens the marketplace back up to a wide range of competitors because anyone who tries to come in and offer some other service, the people that they get will be highly undesirable in some particular way. Right. If you don't go to college, that could be because you couldn't hack it, right? You just weren't smart enough. You weren't disciplined enough. And therefore, when you don't go to college, you join a pool of people who are potentially very bad, right? If you, if, if you were to go hiring from the pool of people who didn't go to college, on average, they have a lot of traits that aren't as good as people who did go to college. And it doesn't really matter how much of that was instilled by the college versus already there when they arrived on their first day. What matters is that the employer is going to be very reluctant to hire someone who isn't, didn't go to college and is going to be reluctant to pay them as much. If you want to get out of this situation, it can be very difficult. And keep in mind, the college can, in fact, demand from you almost all of the benefits of going to college versus not going to college as the fee for going to college. And you kind of have to pay, right? So colleges can ramp up their cost as they have over the years. And you have no alternative because if it costs you a million dollars of earnings to be seen as not going to college and it benefits you $100,000 to go to college versus a situation where there were no colleges and the college can still charge you a million dollars because it costs you a million one to not be there. Well, maybe maybe what's happening right now will shake that up and will cause people in large enough groups who are the kind of people who might go to college and the kind of people who uh, are destined for the kind of careers that require a higher level of thinking and skill, perhaps enough of those people will exit out so that the pool of people who didn't go to college or who didn't go to a four-year, in-person, highly uh, visible, highly prestigious college, that the, the quality of the people outside of that pool might grow just because enough people are beginning to opt out because they just can't hack the pain of paying so much money and getting so little in return beyond the credential. Right. And every person who opts out, who is in fact capable of producing a lot of value, makes it easier for every future person to opt out, even if they have no way to, to effectively signal that they are part of that group. And what would be, we'd even hope for even more is that we'd find an alternate form of certification, an alternate form of proof of somebody's quality that could then be a replacement for college, but would have much lower costs. It seems to me that, that especially now in this era where it's very easy in certain uh, areas anyway to view a person's productive capacity, that that would happen more and more. I hired a number of people to work on coding projects, and I have GitHub, a repository that I can look at, and I can view their work. It's not a perfect, uh, it's not a perfect symbol of how good they are. It's a sampling, but of course, a college degree is the same thing. At this point, whenever possible, I actually ignore the credentials that people have and try, if at all possible, to look at what are the real world, and real world in this case might be 
the zeros and ones that are ultimately code, but nonetheless, what they've produced that gives me evidence that they're going to be good at doing a particular job. It's surprising to me. Or maybe that is just going to be a long process, starting with the areas where it's most clear what someone is able to produce and moving to the ones where we don't yet have those kind of real world signifiers. Yeah, I don't think it's an accident that large numbers of people that I know and large, large fractions of the intelligent people are gravitating increasingly towards coding. Uh, coding is one of the places where you stay meaningfully grounded. You're actually creating code that obeys rules and it either works or it doesn't and it either is buggy or it isn't. And people can, in fact, reasonably objectively judge the quality of your code. And especially in relatively small companies with less levels of management, they will correctly figure out how good you are. And it's very well rewarded. And because the signals are powerful enough, they can crowd out other more traditional signals like going to college. And therefore, a coder doesn't really have to. Learn programming and move to the Bay, as it were, right? Or New York or Boston or Austin or wherever else you want. And there's plenty of jobs if you have it. It's very easy to show that you have it. Yeah, it's very easy in those fields, not so much in others, though perhaps we'll see over time more structures that arise to allow people to demonstrate their skills or productive capacity in other lines of work. You already have it in terms of writing or music or these other things that uh, one can put on the internet and become viral successes. And that's a fairly strong indicator to someone who might hire you that you have what it takes for those particular careers. Yes. I, I think it's very good that people can just post stuff and then people can react to that and then that can act as a springboard. You know, one of the reasons I write is to get better at writing. One of the reasons is to understand the world. But, you know, you never know. Someone might take an interest at some point. That would be cool. I So I have a, a daughter, and I'm now pushing her. She's in her late teens to put, to begin to have some of her work visible online under the assumption that well, she's actually a pretty good candidate for universities if they do continue along and come back. She's fairly compatible with higher education in terms of her sensibilities, but I am pushing very hard that she has out there a record so that people can look at that and say, okay, this is this person and this is what they've achieved. And I can see very clearly that they've demonstrated particular capacities or abilities. Yeah, there's a very big tension, uh, especially of children. You want them to get themselves out there. It has many benefits. They learn, they grow, they interact with more people. They potentially get noticed or discovered and, and they provide evidence that, you know, this is what I did then, this is what I did after that and so on. It also leaves a permanent record of things you did when you were young and foolish. You know, that, that also can come back to haunt you. Yeah, this, th this is why I, I have waited this long in order to push her to put a lot of public stuff out there. Um, and I think it's important to keep that public stuff as generally positive as you can in terms of showing yourself. I think that that's actually part of the moment that we're in in particular is that you don't have a choice but to be a very careful crafter of your public image in part because people are so tuned in to those higher levels of understanding. I look at a phenomenon like Instagram, and my daughter hasn't gotten too pulled into this, but I know that it is now a huge part of the culture. And the 
amount of effort that one has to put into not just crafting the particular image, but crafting messages and communications so that you're not just saying, for example, you know, you look great there, but there's so much nuance about that, mostly because people are interpreting those messages not on the object level of directly, oh, you look good there, but two very similar messages that to someone outside might look exactly the same might convey anything from that direct object level, you actually look good there, to even if it reads the same way to someone outside of that based on how long it took them to post that reply or the number of exclamation points or whatever, it might actually mean, I'm really upset with you or you're no longer part of the club. And so kids grow up having to learn to operate, and maybe this has always been true, but perhaps there's something intensifying about the interconnected, always-on-internet moment that forces kids to operate on those higher levels of abstraction, because if they don't, they arrive at school one day and everyone is ignoring them and they have no idea what happened. If you ask me what the scariest movie is that I've seen in the last 10 years, I would say eighth grade. By far, I think. Like, it's a, it's a story about a, a girl in eighth grade and, like, just trying to go about her day in, in, the, day of in, the, in the age of Instagram and Twitter and just seeing what happens. And nothing, nothing particularly strange occurs. This seems like a dystopian hellhole that we've created. What happened? How could people possibly not get obsessed with this stuff? How, how could they live in a way that lets them be people? It seems impossible. I don't understand it. I guess our only hope there is that anything that uh, doesn't seem sustainable ultimately won't be sustainable. We're all old here, right? Like, we, we didn't grow up with it. It's not native to us. It feels more natural to them. And it looks horrible, but it's almost certainly less horrible than it looks. It, it would almost have to be. I concluded that, like, Facebook is highly toxic and I want no part of it. And I concluded Instagram looks highly toxic and I want no part of it. And I concluded that Twitter is highly toxic, but I kind of want a part of it anyway. And I'm probably making a mistake, but... So be it. Well, hopefully we end up living in a place where uh, there are enough people who want to opt out that it provides that kind of uh, safe space to opt out of these particularly uh, toxic, immoral mazes. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Instagram is a immoral maze per se, but I certainly think that it encourages and reinforces types of behavior that don't go anywhere that I particularly think bodes well. So before we wrap up, I want to talk about Magic the Gathering. As mentioned when I introduced you, Magic has been an important part of your life. So as someone who knows almost nothing about it, I've nonetheless noticed that as a phenomenon, it seems to have had a fairly large influence. It pops up in what seem like the most unexpected places to me, and people who might be considered part of the magic diaspora seem to be doing a lot of interesting things, from starting ill-fated Bitcoin exchanges to creating new subcultures. What do you think it is about magic that causes it to cast such a long shadow? Magic is a place that gives you a new field of study continuously. There's always something new to discover. It allows you to be creative. It allows you to explore. It allows you to solve new problems. It's a meritocracy. No one is ever perfect, but when you go to the magic community, everybody wants to be playing better. Everybody wants to have fun. Everybody wants to see how things work and figure out how things work together. And it's a very positive culture for developing skills of analysis and reason and understanding and sportsmanship and effort 
and any number of other good things I could put alongside that. And it's, it's a huge, just a huge intelligence test on top of everything else. You can't win at Magic by memorizing a series of rules. Magic is constantly changing. Every game is different. The cards rotate every two years. There's new cards available every three months. The metagame of choices changes every week or two. And so you have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to understand. You have to be able to think on deep levels. It trains, develops, and tests a lot of these skills. And it allows us to have a refuge from you know, what the Instagram world and other versions of that that we might want to avoid. And so it draws together a lot of people who then become very competitive, very dedicated to doing what it takes, to working hard, to solve actual problems, right? Because like, it's not the real world, but you have to actually care about what wins the game. You have to care about what strategies are effective and ineffective. And you have to care about becoming better at finding those strategies and so on. And you enter a culture where all that is rewarded. And therefore, the magic community is sort of at what I sometimes call the good equilibrium, where people want to reward skill and being better and to help each other and to punish anybody who tries to cheat the system or otherwise get ahead through other means. This is in stark contrast to much of the other places out there. And also the game is just incredibly fun. It draws us in because we want to keep playing. I, I will often play a game of magic, not because there's anything for me to gain. I just feel like I'm playing a game of magic this hour and I have some time and I'm going to go play. I played an extra match this morning that I didn't have to play. Just because I felt like it. And so these people have then developed all of these skills, including skills involving probability, statistics, general analysis. This is the way the world works now. And so a lot of them got into poker. A lot of them got into game design. A lot of them ended up going to Wall Street. Because again, once you actually start to understand these dynamics and you can work with all of these things and you're demonstrably pretty smart, you learn, well, if I'm going to play games to try and win them, why don't I play a game that pays a lot more? Right. And that's that's the reason that's kind of the reason for poker. That's kind of the reason then for Wall Street and for doing a number of other things and also just branch out. Like it makes sense that blockchain would be a draw because it's another one of these new areas of unexplored space. Like there's so much in blockchain that nobody's ever done before. And most of it is terrible because most of anything is terrible. But some of it is really great. So very interesting. I think that helps me understand much more the phenomenon. I think one of the things there too that seems to be kind of lurking behind the scenes is a tolerance for experimentation and trying out different strategies and seeing where they go. Yeah, it's not just tolerance, it's active reward. So like what we call some spice, meaning to do something different than what other people are doing, to play a rogue deck is actively rewarded and encouraged because it makes the experience better for everybody. The, the worst thing that can happen for a magical experience is for everybody to show up and be doing the same thing, for everybody pursuing the same strategy, because that gets boring pretty fast, right? That's not why we're playing this game. But if we wanted to play chess, we could play chess. It's interesting to solve what happens when you're both doing the same thing. But once you've solved that problem and you just keep doing it over and over again, it gets increasingly uninteresting. That's why magic gets a burst of excitement every time things change and then slowly loses excitement as time goes by and things become more static and then has a new burst of excitement when things change again, because it increases exploration and diversity. You know, I was always one of the champions of try to build your own thing, do your own thing, come up with your own strategies, and encouraging that in others, and the magic community continues to celebrate that as much as possible. We've reached an internet age where very quickly it's easy to go online, watch key streamers, look at key tweeters, you know, read articles, and find out what the most effective known strategies are and copy one of them. But I think the people who are having the most fun, who are becoming better at magic, don't take that as throat. They explore themselves and they figure out what they want to do. 
Got it. Makes uh, makes sense. I appreciate you explaining that to me. It helps me understand a little bit better a phenomenon that definitely had been only something that pops up on my radar from time to time when there's some interesting connection with the culture or new business or person who uh, was part of it, like yourself, and is doing some really interesting work. Yeah. If I know that somebody did well in Met the Gathering, then I know I want to meet this person for the most part. I have never sat down to a meal after a tournament with random Edu players and not had a good time. It just never happens. Excellent. Well, V, thanks for coming on the filter. Absolutely. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.